There's 7,106 languages on earth. 7,106 ways to say I love you, when you marry me, I'm sorry. And you've heard me talk about the universal language that is photography. I've talked about this before on the show and in other places. Well, as soon as I, I drop that episode or I make that statement in public or whatever about the universality of photography, somebody invariably in the room or in the comments or somewhere says, you know what else has that? Music has that universality. And that's why I'm over the moon to have today's guest on the show. Her name is Clemency Burton Hill, longtime friend, maybe uh, not 10 years, more than more than three, less than 10. And uh, we met through a mutual friend. I was instantly really connected to Clemency because of her background as a multi-hyphenate. Uh, yes, she's a musician, um, but she's also a podcast host, a an entrepreneur, a employee. She is the creative director for the New York Public Radio. She, like all of us, does so many different things, does them all well, but has this amazing uh, foundation as all of us multi-hyphenates do. There's usually one thing that where we sort of have our base camp, if you will. And Clemmy's is music. She is a classical music expert. So right now you're going, wait a minute, classical music? Like what's classical music? I know Chase for for uh, punk rock and hip hop and metal and all, all these other genres that even if you just listen to the opening music for the show, you probably wouldn't peg me as someone who loves classical music. And I love classical music only because it's music. Think of the best films you've ever seen. They want to elicit some emotion from you. Boom, classical music. Well, Clemency is, in a, uh, is our guest today because she wants to do away with the concept of classical music, despite the fact that she loves and helps us hear, understand, and connect with um, a music genre that a lot of us have written off. Um, but there's certainly some power here in what audio, what music, and specifically this genre of music that is either ignored in pop culture, uh, large popular pop culture circles, or um, dominionized, is that the right word? Made small. And if you think about the context of history um, and the emotional power behind this music, I cannot think of a better human on the planet to help us understand it. That's why I'm over the moon to have Clemency Burton Hill as the guest. Again, she's a creative director for the music and arts part of New York Public Radio. Um, back in the UK, she's a, been a host on all, all sorts of things, the BBC radio, the BBC television and arts programs, uh, more than a decade. She's been doing that. She contributes also to the economists, to the financial times, the guardian, the telegraph, all sorts of the UK media outlets you'd expect. And now she's living in New York city, which means I get to see her a little more often. And I'm over the moon to get to have her on the show today. Blessing your ears. She's got this amazing British accent that will just soothe your ears where you're listening and being filled up with knowledge about creativity, human connection, and the power of music. I'm going to get out of the way, but before we do, just a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, before we get into today's episode, I got a favor to ask. I've got a new book out. It's called Creative Calling. And of course, I would love for you to pick up a copy or two or 10, but here's why. This is not about a transaction. Of course, I want to sell as many books as I can, but this isn't about my bank account or the publisher. This is about a message and a movement. This is about the fact that there's creativity inside of every person and that if we understand that we each can harness this creativity and use it to channel 
uh, our, our creativity, not just to make things on a daily basis, yes, that's valuable, but to be able to create the living life that we want for ourselves and ideally for those around us. And right now, everyone has someone in their life who either doesn't identify as a creator or for whom they could use a bump, a nudge, a little bit of a push around their creative calling in life. And it's my hope that this book, I put everything I have into this book, everything. And if you could help me be the messenger for this by delivering them a copy of the book, um, picking up a copy uh, yourself, and of course, sharing that you are reading this book um, with your audience, that would mean everything to me. It's so important that we rally as a community around the ideas that we believe in, and this is my ask to you. So thank you very much. And now, okay, now let's get into today's episode. Clemency, thank you so much for being on the show today. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm a little bit disappointed that we're not doing this in person, but it's very nice to hear your voice. It's true. It's true. And I was about to reveal that I'm going to be in New York next week, so maybe we can get a bite. <gasps> and it oh. would have been nice to do this in person, but hey, sooner is almost always better when it comes to um, making one of these podcasts, especially with someone I respect and admire and appreciate like yourself. It's good to oh. be on the, on the horn with you today. Absolutely. Well, the feeling is very mutual. I feel like the very first time we met all those years ago, there was an instant kinship and a sense of being very spiritually and creatively aligned. So I'm always happy to talk to you. And I'm very much looking forward to seeing you in New York. Yes, it's happening soon. I will. I'm, I'm, I'm back there quite a bit now, certainly monthly. So um, we'll have to like increase our frequency. Um, I think last time we were together in New York was an early breakfast, if I'm not mistaken. So we I did. Can... We had very good bagels downtown. <laughs> I remember. So I remember. We can just make um, that a monthly hang if you want. I would love it. I would love it. And speaking of hang, this is we haven't spoken in a while, so it's a it's a little bit of a catch up. And for the folks at home who um, are not familiar with your work, the handful of people. Uh, you touch a lot of things. I mean, you're a creative director at WKX, WQXR in New York. That's New York Public Radio. You've got, gosh, at least at least a couple of books. I know one most recently, Harper Collins, The Year of Wonder, which is about music. We're going to talk a little bit about that. Acting career, all kinds of writing, like. You're, you do like 50 things. How do you describe yourself? I do, at least 50 things. Well, I used to describe myself as a juggler, and I'd get these really baffled looks from people <laughs> in like the orts in Britain. They were like, what? Are you like a member <laughs> of a circus? Or, And it's funny, actually, because I mean, I'm, I'm like a very grandma, great grandma millennial in a way. I was born in the early 1980s, and I graduated in 2003, and honestly, the idea that you could have a career like mine that doesn't make any sense on paper in some ways, it just didn't exist. So for the last kind of, you know, 15, 16 years, I've been very much forging my own crazy little path. And it really was baffling, I think, to a lot of people for a long time. Now, of course, it's exactly the kind of creative career that people kind of want. And I get endlessly people being like, how do I have a career like yours? And like, <laughs> I want to do all these different things. It's so funny, the sort of idea of the multi-hyphen life. My friend Emma Gannon actually has just written a book literally called The Multi-Hyphen Life. 
And I was living that for the longest time before it was fashionable or before really even I was given, well, I definitely wasn't given permission to do so. And then I did this crazy thing. I did a reverse commute into basically my first proper job last year. Um, I was brought over from London to New York City to be creative director of music and arts at New York Public Radio. So we have two radio stations, WNYC and WQXR, which you mentioned is the music station. And we have a big podcast studio called WNYC Studios. And we have a live event space in downtown Manhattan. So like nothing was probably going to pull me into a real job except one as awesome as that. And so here I am, you know, sitting in my office right now, which is highly ironic for anyone who's known me a long time. The idea of me having, you know, a corporate email and a lanyard and an office is hilarious. But, a lanyard that's but, amazing i haven't I know. yeah i've never had i a get lanyard. such a buzz when i beat through the turnstiles i'm like look at me in my grown-up <laughs> job like 21 years after i joined the workforce but the fact that you have so many your your fingers in so many things i think that the idea of being the multi-hyphenate um as you said it didn't exist a long time ago or if it did it didn't have the name and now not only is it common but it's so desired and that's I mean, you know who i speak to and the people who are listening to this right now um they by and large either fit into that you know universe really neatly and tidily or they aspire to and by that universe i mean the universe of identifying as a multi-hyphenate someone who's pursuing their interests and whether they have you know their hobbies and their passions are outside of work or there it's a part of it that's sort of uh insignificant as it as it is with you like you said you 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 know, bounced halfway across the globe and, um, you know, found, find yourself now still at a place where you're doing all kinds of things. And I'm sure you do things outside of your, your of job. Course. And, and of so course. my question is like, of course you already said that you didn't, you know, you didn't even think that would be possible, but do you have any advice for, um, the folks who are thinking that that's not possible or that they would aspire to that, but they don't know where to start? Well, I think, you know, I come, first of all, from a place of immense privilege. It goes without saying I grew up in London. I was able um, to stay rent free with my mom. My mom's a single mom. There wasn't much money when I was growing up, but I did at least have a roof over my head. You know, there are all sorts of privileges that I have to acknowledge on this path. And I understand that in many ways it's getting harder and harder because jobs are more and more scarce and the gig economy um, has made it in some ways really easy for people to be like oh you can go out there and make your own life but somehow you've also still got to pay the bills and you've got to have a roof over your head and I feel in many ways like I came of age in this moment that was really really interesting because I grew up in an era where the sort of traditional legacy media brands and I you know although I do many many different things I do mostly work in media one way or another I did meet someone the other day who was like a chef and a geographer and like studying for a molecular <laughs> biology PhD and I was like oh you're like a literal multi-hyphenate I'm just like a storyteller and I just happen to do it across multi-platforms but you are an actual you know doing all of these different things um I in some ways that was very difficult because there was really I mean of course there was the internet I'm not that old but there was no real sense that you could publish your own blog or create your own podcast or make your own movies and put them on YouTube. So if you wanted to create and have a life in the creative world, you had to kind of have permission from a grown up who was like going to anoint you with this thing. And I was super hustly. I always have been. I was super passionate about what I wanted to do. And it didn't necessarily sort of stick into a 
box, but it was very real to me and it still is. And um, so I, I, you know, I, the biggest piece of advice I could give to anyone is if you have it in you, if you are burning to create something, you just can't wait for someone to give you permission for that. You, you have to just go and find a way to do it. And in many ways now, gosh, what an incredible array of opportunities you have to tell your own story, to get your voice heard, to publish. That didn't really exist when I was first emerging into the workforce. But the flip side to that was that once you were in it, there was this kind of structure around you. You know, people would still pay you. I mean, my first jobs um, as a journalist and as a writer were for some, you know, really eminent publications. I convinced them to, you know, give me a shot. I wrote to every single editor. I started writing book reviews. Mostly that was my first sort of foray into journalism. And then I became a features writer and a profile writer and a columnist. Um, But, you know, once I had an opportunity, then they would give me a byline and they would pay me some money for my words. And I feel like now even really fine, fine, fine young writers who write to me and they they write beautifully. There's not always a guarantee that someone's going to pay them for their words, but there are now platforms whereby they can get their words out to people where they are. And so it's a kind of an interesting shift that I've seen happen in real time in my own career. But I think you know, to your listeners and your supporters, Chase, and your followers, like, you know who you are. Like, if it's in you and you're burning to say something, you have to say it. Like, it'll find a way out. And the thing that I hold on to very dearly, and I can't always believe this, but I really try to, is nobody can tell that story like you. There is only one you, and there's only one of your perception and your reception of the world and your take on things. And so sometimes it can be so hard. And I think that social media, whilst it can be the most enabling and empowering, incredible force, can also be such a negative, soul crushing force that you can feel everyone else is somehow getting out there and doing it. And I'm not. And, you know, I think you have to try. It can be really difficult to hold on to that idea that you have this really beautiful and unique perspective going through this life as a human on this earth and that that is valid and that you know if you stay true to yourself I know it's such a cliche and you commit to that you know people will find that that will find a way out I loved I loved what you said that was beautiful it reminded I was just on the phone with uh, Dan Pink I don't know if you know Dan Pink the author Uh, he wrote a book called The Whole New Mind which is why right brain people will rule the future uh, drive uh, to sell as human. He's got a, a, a bunch of them. And not only do you have a, a voice, but what he said, t- something that really resonated with me, which is like, you have a moral obligation. If you're creating work that you love, you have a moral obligation to put it out in the world. I thought that was, it was so much stronger than, um, than it's just that creativity is n- nice in and of itself, which you know, I think we, we both agree to, but this, this concept of, um, just of putting it out there and there's I no excuses that now. so much. And I think that people might think that it's incredibly indulgent to talk about it in those terms. It's like, sure. no, what you, what you have a moral responsibility to do is like your recycling and, you know, your, <laughs> uh, you know, pay your taxes and contribute to charities and yes those two obviously you have a moral obligation to be as good a citizen and a good ancestor that goes without saying but actually I do think that the arts are a public service I think that things like books and photographs and images and music they are public services they are what keep us 
going as human beings. They are what endure of us. I mean, we are in this torrid moment in the West. And, you know, when we're speaking, actually, I don't know when this will go out, but, you know, I'm watching these dismal results come in from the UK general election and feeling so depressed, I can barely function. And, you know, we are at this incredibly divisive and ugly period politically and socially and culturally. And yet, you know, people will continue to come together and they will continue to come together using these very powerful forces that are, I think, sort of agents of empathy. You know, you can connect to a piece of work that someone put out into the universe hundreds of years ago. And that piece of work is like an outstretched hand across the universe saying, me too, you too, I'm here, we're, we're all in this together. And I know that sounds kind of incredibly idealistic, but I've been through this, I've been saved so many times by other people's words, or pieces of music, or pictures, or stories that they've told on screen. And so it's real. And that's what remains of us when we go. And so it's not indulgent. I love that idea that it is a moral responsibility. Imagine if everyone said, oh, you know what, there's more important things to do than put these things out there. And I should just go and answer my email instead. What would be <laughs> left of us? It'd be so depressing. So true. So true. Um, well, I want to get into a little bit about what I know of your professional side, if you will, your professional creative side. And, um, and admittedly, it's, you know, just from a half a dozen um, hour plus long conversations that we've had, but I'm so moved by it. And I think it, it, we've already talked about its, its diversity. Um, but I'm going to help paint a little, a little uh, picture for the listeners and um, they're, I'm going to ground most of them in the audio universe. And here we are on a, on a podcast and yeah. you also have uh, the open ears project, which is uh, a show in which each episode features a guest sharing a soulful story about uh, a, a piece of classical music that means something to them. And then I'm going to connect that dot back to one of the first like really comprehensive um, pieces of work that I ever consumed from you, which is um, a year of wonder, classical music to enjoy day by day, in which piece in which you every single day list a new piece of music and uh, some insight around it. And uh, so clearly music is a piece of your universe. And then when you digest the fact that you also are uh, an amazing musician in your own right. So is it audio that you're most attracted to, or is that just your primary me um, mode? Or give us a little, uh, a little, I guess, construct here. So I still can't answer that question that everyone used to say to me when I first <laughs> was in the career, you know, in the in the workplace. When people are like, "When are you going to make up your mind? Which one is it?" I still can't answer that. I'm afraid, Jace. I'm. I'm obsessed with people's stories and I'm obsessed with helping to tell other people's stories and I'm obsessed with connecting to people and communicating and empathizing, as I say. And I think for me, I guess words and music are the primary way that I find myself doing it, but also the sort of solace that I take from others. So much as I adore visual art and you know how much I love photography, which is one of the reasons I was, I'm such an admirer of yours as well. Um, 
I love those media. I love film. I'm a member of, you know, a council member of BAFTA, which is, you know, a big part of my life. Um, and I did have, you know, 10 years or so working mostly in film and TV as well. So it's not that I don't love visual mediums, but for me, it, it does tend to be audio and music and words that are the things that I'm drawn back to again and again and again. And it's funny because, yeah, classical music is a big part of my life and it has become quite a big part of my work. Um, I started playing the violin when I was really tiny. And I tell this story. Did you have a tiny violin? I had a, <laughs> never had that one before. <laughs> I did. I had a very tiny violin because I was so wee. Um, <laughs> but actually, this story is kind of important to me because it's taught me so much. So um, I mentioned I have a, I grew up in London, single mom, three kids. The house was very busy. My, my poor mom was, was very busy. And it was Christmas time before I even turned two. And she had put me in front of the TV. As I mentioned, it was the early 1980s. So she had a pretty chill approach to screen time. And there was some kind of Christmas concert going on on the television. And I was apparently just completely captivated immediately, like really like drawn to the television, like right up on the screen. And I went on and on and on about kind of, you know, the music. And she knew I was kind of musical because I'd sing a lot and all that stuff. But I got really focused and fixated on this idea of playing the violin, which my mum thought was crazy. And my two older half-brothers who I grew up with, neither of them played an instrument except for maybe the recorder at school. And my mum, by her own admission, is tone deaf. So it wasn't like this, like we were in this weird classical music hothouse environment. And I kept going on about it. And she eventually talked to a friend of hers who worked at the Royal Opera House, who introduced her to a violinist who was like, well, there is this way of teaching young kids and there's this like special method it's called Suzuki so my mum who's very patient and lovely went to the phone book and maybe 17 motorcycle dealerships later she was like about to give up and then she got through to someone at the London Suzuki group a woman called Helen Brunner who was one of the most is one of the most influential people that I've ever had the privilege to meet in life and she went, yeah, sure, too. That's fine. She should come for a, you know, she should come and watch a group lesson. Um, so not long after my second birthday, which blows my mind a little bit, I went um, and witnessed this group lesson. And then shortly after that, I started playing. And that sounds so crazy to me. I mean, my youngest son is nearly two. And the idea of that is kind of mind blowing. And yet what that said to me, what it teaches me later in life is that actually this thing that I hold so dear, which is that music is a universal language. You know, I'm the living proof of that. It was speaking to me through that TV set in the early 80s in London, through my living room or whatever. Um, and I've seen that again and again and again. And playing the violin really unlocked the keys to my life. But it also wasn't the thing that I wanted to do as a professional career. I was on that kind of track for a bit. I had a scholarship to the Royal College of Music in London, which is kind of like Juilliard, I guess, um, junior department and I was definitely in that world but I was not ever interested in that being the only thing that I would do with my life I was always interested in how music connected to other things and other people and other sort of stuff I was interested in but I had some really formative experiences really early on like in 1989 before the Berlin Wall came down I went as part of a group of kids from many different places around the world and we all gathered at the Berlin Wall and we did this concert and I was so struck, even then, I must have been like sort of seven or eight years old, that this was miraculous, that we were coming together and there were all these kids and I couldn't speak their language, but we were all playing together and that 
there were kids from both sides of the wall. And when you've seen a wall up close like that, I then spent a lot of time later in life in Israel and Palestine and in the West Bank and working with kids in refugee camps, making music all around the world. And when I say that the violin has been this kind of passport to adventure, it's also been a passport to human story. And I do believe that we are fundamentally a music making species and we're also a music sharing species. I, you know, at some point got like very nerdily into sort of social anthropology and music and would be riveted by these accounts of very early human societies, you know, hunter gatherer societies that would come together at the end of an evening, at the end of a long day of, you know, hard graft hunting and gathering wherever they were. And they would sit around a fire and they would sing. And we were a musical species before we were a verbal species. We use music to communicate and we use music to evolve and to figure out how to be and how to tell our stories and how to move through the world. And that to me is such a powerful image because I see that everywhere. I've been lucky enough to work pretty much all over the world in lots of different continents. And my journalism has taken me to many places. My broadcasting has taken me to many places. And the violin is always something with which I can basically say to someone I meet in a bar or a random musician that I might come across, you know, like, hey, let's jam. And it might be that we come from totally different cultures, but there is this kind of universal this universal connective tissue, which is music and this connective glue. And so this is a very long-winded way, Chase, of getting back to audio and music. But mm, this um, is like, yeah, my book... We're here for I a realized, reason. We're here to talk to you. So. Um, I realised when I wrote my book, Year of Wonder, it partly came out of the fact that I was noticing that a lot of people were asking me for classical music. I'd spent a long time as the host of BBC Radio 3 Breakfast. So it meant that I was on air every morning, playing spinning classical music to uh, many hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people around Britain beyond. And I had played the violin all my life. I'd also worked as a presenter and broadcaster on other arts and music programs. So I was quite steeped in it, I guess. And for me, music was music. The fact that it was classical was just at that point, it was classical, but I might be just as likely to go home and listen to something that was non-classical. It was all part of the same sort of mix for me. But I realised how lucky I was. I had this treasure trove of music that I'd been exposed to. And so it wasn't as daunting a prospect as it might be for others. But what I kept hearing from people was, I really love this music. I heard it in a film or I heard it on TV or I heard it, you know, my Spotify algorithm served me up some. And I'd love to hear more, but I don't know if I'm listening right. And I'm not sure quite how to find it or where to find it. And I don't know if I'm doing it right. And it was almost like we were doing like a shady drugs deal. People were like, you know, can you sort me out? Could you sort me out with a classical playlist? And it was so interesting to me that people, on the one hand, it felt like we had to do it on the down low because you couldn't admit out loud that you like classical music because that made you such a freak. And on the other hand, there was this weird sense that there was something wrong with the fact that they didn't know anything about classical music. Like, so many times I hear people sort of apologizing for that and I was like why would you know anything about classical music this is an art form that's been like increasingly marginalized from the mainstream cultural conversation it's very rarely taught in a mainstream way in schools anymore the only people that have access to it tend to be the kids of you know posh white privileged people who think that somehow it'll make their kids smarter if they do it you know it's not 
represented in popular culture anymore. It is this like weird niche pursuit that people on the fringes do. So why would you know anything about it? It's nothing to be ashamed of. And the thing that I felt so strongly about was there's no right way. There's no right way to listen to classical music. There's no right way to respond to it. It's your music too. This is something that we've been doing for millennia. And so Year of Wonder came about because I thought, well, I've got this, so I'm so lucky to be in this position. I could create a kind of field guide through almost a millennia of Western classical music, starting with these incredible composers called Hildegard of Bingen from the 11th century, or Perrotin, who we barely know anything about. He's really the first human that we know who authored music, who's, you know, before that it was all anonymous. So Hildegard and Perrotin are some of the very earliest, but I wanted to go right through to the present day. So I've got composers in there who were born in, you know, the 1990s and beyond. It is an alive and evolving and dynamic and real art form that is still being made and remade all the time, all around us. So I collated 366 really, I think, incredible pieces of music and basically curated a a year's worth so that every day of the year there's one single piece to listen to. I'm very busy. You're very busy, Chase. But most of us can eke out a few minutes a day to listen to to one piece and I wanted to demystify classical music and I also wanted to humanize the people who made it so it was really important to me to tell stories about the composers themselves and to shed light on composers who often don't get included in the conversation whether it might be female composers or people of color or people who come from different traditions not just you know from 18th century Vienna and you know have a powdered wig and wear a frock coat there are all these extraordinary composers throughout history who've I think given us this incredible gift you know they've taken this creative risk this moral responsibility that they had to get their take on the world out and into this form onto manuscript paper into music that might then touch and elevate the lives of unknown, inconceived of humans further down the continuum of history. I find it so moving to think of that, of the solace that I take from a piece of music that was written many, many hundreds of years ago and how I enjoy it, you know, on the subway here in New York City in a world that is completely unimaginable to the person who wrote it, but is so meaningful to me today, you know, invests my life with, with meaning and beauty and wonder. And so that's kind of how the book came about. And then the Open Ears Project, which is my latest podcast, is almost a reversal of that. Because in Year of Wonder, I'm still the one curating. I'm still the expert, if you like. I'm the one telling you what to listen to and why. And what I wanted to do with the Open Ears Project is really turn that around and say, you, whoever you are, I'm interested in in your story around classical music. Is there a single piece of music that has had an impact in your life and why. And I wanted to radically rethink who gets to talk about classical music and on what terms. So every day for the season, we'd hear from a different guest from a different walk of life and they would share a piece of classical music that was meaningful to them. So Esther Perel, great psychotherapist, talking about being 17 and sad and containing the sadness within her that she couldn't quite give words to or couldn't find a meaning around she encountered this beautiful piece of music the foray requiem and that seemed to meet her that music seemed to 
give meaning to what she was experiencing at that point. Had amazing people from, you know, actors like Alec Alec Baldwin, Baldwin. yeah, Jesse Eisenberg, uh, and wonderful writers Ian McEwan talking about the moment where he discovered that he'd lost his best friend Christopher Hitchens, and he goes downstairs and he finds the bottle of whiskey that Christopher Hitchens had last poured when he was last there, and he puts on this piece of music, the Bach double, and contemplates that friendship and that grief and that loss, and they're just very soulful, very very short little glimpses into other human lives. I had a wonderful opera singer called Jamie Barton talking about growing up, you know, very isolated as a very confused queer female in a community that didn't understand her at all in rural Georgia, you know, living in a trailer against this mountain and this very isolated place. And randomly hearing this piece of Chopin, a piano piece written by, you know, 19th century guy from Poland and then France and hearing this piece and feeling like that was where her the keys to her identity lay and she started to basically figure out who she was she listened to this piece again and again and again and again and again and it seemed to answer something in her and that's what I heard constantly through the course of the series and it was really important to me that yeah we had some very famous people in the series but we also had a 9-11 firefighter who talked about Wagner and what that meant to him in the terrible days after 9-11. We had a mm. yoga teacher who talked about her grandmother. We had a, a member of the US military who talked about this piece by Steve Reich, you know, really, really seeing him through a very, very dark time when he was stationed. You know, so it was really all about the, the gamut of human experience and human life told through the filter of this music. But really, it's about how we connect and how we hear each other. And I think we've sort of really lost the art of listening to each other. And that's very important to me. And I suppose that when you ask about the audio component, yeah. I suppose it really comes back to that. Is that the longest answer no, you've ever had to a question ever? Yeah, but it's like we're here specifically to get long answers. <laughs> if we wanted short answers, we'd be on television. <laughs> Love <laughs> you want, for it. That's why this is a gorgeous ones. thing. And I'm so happy to be here. Well, I, I was struck well so many times while you were sharing. And um, in particular... Uh, it, let's see, how do I say this? So one of the things that drew me to photography was the universality of the image that there are 7,106 languages known in the planet and photography is this universal language, right? I can show you a photograph of a mother and a child and instantly signal this powerful and profound emotion in who's ever, you know, observing the image and it's not lost on me. And that's one of the reasons that I, I have deconstructed my own process of pursuing something that was meaningful to me. And it was never lost on me for a minute that the other universal language besides the image is music. Yeah. And so when you're, um, There is some, in some ways, there's this profundity of um, like, there's this like metaphysical weight when we think of music in terms of that, not dissimilar to photography. And yet it's almost like in the everyday that you, you talked about all those, um, you know, the different moments of guests that you've had on the show where uh, music is like, it's, it's, it's part of the fabric of their life. Right. And what would it be like without it? 
So you said already, like, it's not about classical music. That just happens to be something you know a lot about and you can, you know, use as a vehicle to, you know, help, you know, reconnect this music with modern culture. But let's park classical for a second and talk about the role of music in our lives. Like people run to music. Why is that? Is it is universality or is it something else? I think it's universality. I am utterly convinced by that. Well, and, it's, okay. yeah. So if, 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 univ- like, okay, then if we agree that there's this universality to it, why does everything go better with music? <laughs> well, it's very hard to put that into words. It's very hard to break it down. And sometimes, I mean, I spend a lot of my life thinking about this. And oftentimes I get really, I get really happy that we can't put it into words. I sort of feel like if we could break it down into causality, oh, it's because this and this and therefore that, it it kind of would lose some of its mysterious, miraculous magic that I think we all know what I'm talking about. I mean, you know, whatever is your jam whether it's death metal or hip-hop or soul or funk or motown or mozart like it like whatever the thing is i think most of us have had that feeling of like oh my god like there i am there it is like this is it and i don't know i can't answer it i i have you know spent quite a long time trying to understand the neuroscience of what happens to our brains on music I'm fascinated by all of that but as I say I kind of love the fact that it's basically like falling in love you know we can't really pin it down to physics we can't really pin it down to an equation at the end of the day and that's magical and I'm not a religious person per se but I am I guess a pretty spiritual person I, I, I have to believe in some force and for me that is mostly found in music that is the closest that I come to hearing the the thing the it whatever it is the sound of the creator or the universe you know is there and and I know this is very unsatisfactory an answer but no it's not I think it's I think we all we all know it when we're in the presence of it and I feel it daily I mean I think one of the things that is really important to me being surrounded by music is not to take it for granted. Um, and I think that about lots of things. I went to see Zadie Smith last week here in New York, and she's just one of my you know, all time sort of writerly heroes. And she was talking about someone had given her a, a little book from sort of hundreds of years ago in Spain, a Spanish book. Um, I can't even remember the title of it now. I was meaning to look it up. And she was like, I just started to read this tiny little book and it struck me again, the miracle. Like I'm in this little boy's head in Spain, medieval Spain, from this page. And I, <laughs> I, I so felt that. I was like, this is a miracle. Every time I hear something that means what it means to me, whether it is a hip hop track or it is a Motown track, I mean, it doesn't have to be classical at all. I'm newly wonderstruck again. And it is the thing that gives me hope. But in terms of, you know, what it delivers for us, something that comes up again and again in the Open Ears Project, and when I'm talking to my guests, is this idea that the music can 
don't ask me how it does it, but it almost is architectural in the space that it creates for us. It seems to build something around us, hold us, meet us, enable us to sometimes sit or move through these very difficult feelings, process them and come out the other side, emerge redeemed or changed or resolved. And I was thinking about the fact that when I broke up with my first ever real boyfriend, or rather when I was broken up with, because I was, you know, grotesquely dumped at the age of 15 or 16 or wherever I was. And oh my goodness, I thought my life was over. I mean, I was literally like, I felt like I had been taken apart by grief and that I would never, ever, you know, survive it. And we'd been very into music. He was very into music, um, not never classical, but we would, you know, we would go to see bands in London all the time. We were really into like indie music and dance music at the time. And, um, all the mixtapes that he had made me and all the music that we'd like dutifully taped off the radio together off like these, you know, pirate radio stations in London, in West London at the time. And we were so old that we were literally using cassette tapes. You're listening to some of your millennial listeners are probably like, what the hell? <laughs> uh, cassette tapes, not just things that you buy in like random Brooklyn stores. Um, we literally like had cassettes. Um, but so mixtapes were like a real thing. Um, and I would, you know, just basically miserably sit on my bed or in my bed like weeping listening to the music that we'd listened to together as a way of obviously wallowing in the in the grief and I was I guess wanted to wallow in it and then I gradually started to realize that I was sort of feeling better and in a way the music had been part of that journey if you like out of that that feeling and that's a very trivial example of course because obviously I survived and obviously my heart got mended and obviously I, I, I carried on. I made it through life um, very happily married these days to someone else, I must add. But, you know, of course I made it through. I was like a 16-year-old girl who'd been dumped by the first love of her life. It's the most common story in the world. <laughs> but it was real. Like The effect of it was real. And I have had you know, a relatively lucky life over the years. But I've had some some really, really difficult things happen, like everyone. And I've faced incredible periods of depression and grief and loss and sorrow and it has always been music that's got me through and my friends of course and family too but I do think of these pieces as being like my family and my gang my my squad if you like because they are such allies we all know what that feels like Chase I bet there's a you know if you feel a certain way if you're really shitty about life one day, there'll be a piece of music that you will put on, that you will seek and it will make you your life better. It will change your the way you feel about your life and it will move you and it will change you and it will transform you and it will elevate you. And so we all true. have that. We all do. That's so powerful. Mm. A, little thing that you powerful. Can, a little thing that you can put in your ears that has the singularly has the power to change how you feel. And like immediately as well. And, you know, I used to DJ a lot when I was a teenager. Like this is going to date me as well. But like the early days of sort of UK underground garage, two-step garage. And I used to, I was never a very good DJ, but I used to really love the music. And I used to hang out with a lot of these underground DJ um, people <laughs> so ironic now my my classical colleague friends would be like what is what is underground garage what is a turntable what are techniques 12 10 um 
but it was so incredible to me to to watch a dance floor literally blow up with joy when you would drop a certain track or when the bass would drop or when a certain vocal would happen and that incredible communal experience that would happen and I see that happening in concert halls. I had it recently at this incredible, life-changing, properly soul-shaking performance of Verdi's Requiem, given here in New York at The Shed, which is this new art space in Hudson Yards by this phenomenal conductor called Theodore Carensis and Musica Eterna, which is his band. And it was genuinely like among the best gigs I've ever been to in my life and it will change my life I will never ever ever forget it and so sort of I love that about music too as a solitary experience that we go through in private sometimes in our most vulnerable moments and feel held and met and received and seen but also that we do as a group and because it is this universal thing, we do all know what that feels like. You know, when you're at Glastonbury, which is this big music festival, and you're jumping up and down in a field full of mud, or when you're, you know, it doesn't really matter, like a sporting event. It's it when you come together and you sing, or you come together and you experience something, it's very, very powerful. And I think we live in such fissile, divisive, ugly times. And I am all for whatever it takes to remind us that we are all one. We are all the same, basically. And music is a really powerful way of reminding us of that. I'm lucky enough to work, as I say, at WNYC Studios, which is home of some of the great podcasts of our time, including things like Radio Lab, but also a new show called Dolly Parton's America, um, produced by the genius that is Jad Abumrad. And if you don't know him, Chase, you have to get him. No, I don't. But um, he's a, he's like an actual genius. And Dolly Parton's America sounds like such an unlikely series for a nine-part podcast. But she's a perfect example, Dolly, of, you know, whatever side of the political spectrum you come from, whatever part of the country, whoever you are, old, young, gay, straight, black, white, there's something in Dolly for everyone. And she's this great kind of, you know, uniting force. And I am down with that, whatever it takes to remind <laughs> us that we're... Where is one? Well, as we keep pulling on this music thread, because it's a huge part of who you are and what, you know, one of the things that I really wanted to focus on with you as a guest today, um, I want to talk specifically about classical music because, as you've said a couple times, it's why would we know something about it? We're not fed it if you were in, you know, music class or music theory, or if you went to Juilliard, then of course it's a piece of your history yeah. and you, you've had to know a few things. But I just want to point out that if we're watching a movie and they really want to tug on your heartstrings, what do they do? They put classical music in there. Right. Why is it so like what, what, what is happening to us? It's crazy, isn't it? Um, I had <laughs> so crazy. the wonderful Oscar winning film director, Sam Mendes on the open ears project. And he talked about how music is the quickest way to generate emotion. And he talks about the fact that sometimes we don't deserve the emotion that it generates. But nevertheless, as a filmmaker, it's one of the most powerful tools in your arsenal. Of course, there's the image and of course, there's the performances. But you know, you can put like phenomenal oh, yeah. music. Totally. Under you can have a, a blank, you can have a, just a simple backdrop 
and yeah. you play some really emotional music and you're really like stirring music all of a sudden, and everyone's yeah. a mess you know that plate whatever um, you're showing is like is it's somehow magically transformed into a very emotional couch yeah, <laughs> or whatever is in the screen yeah it elevates everything he talked about um not on the podcast but i'd interviewed him about music and and his movie making and he talked about the plastic bag scene in american beauty which is mm. a film that he made his first movie he was in his mid-30s he won an oscar for it 20 years ago and he talked about that scene how he kind of you know he knew it was a it was a powerful moment in the in the movie but it was really when thomas newman's score was put to that image that it took flight quite literally in that case the bag you know but mm -hmm. i didn't mean to, to to use a terrible pun but the music made it the music made that movie as it has made so many other movies besides and again I, it's really hard for me to explain what's happening to us you know neurologically or physiologically when we hear those very very stirring pieces of classical music as they invariably are on film scores um, obviously film soundtracks have all types of music but mostly when we think about the scoring of a movie it tends to be symphonic and you think of the great film composers of our time people like John Williams or Hans Zimmer or Thomas Newman and they are all steeped in the classical tradition and they're basically writing classical music but often we don't think about it in those terms and this is something that I feel really passionately about as well You'll have noticed, Chase, if you've read Year of Wonder, that I put quite a lot of film music in there. Some of my classical purist friends and colleagues might be, you know, up in arms about that. And, you know, well, film music isn't classical music, to which I respond, of course it is. You know, the, the problem there is that the, the definition of classical music is wrong. And actually, it's a really unhelpful term. I would prefer it not to exist because I think it puts so many people off because there's so much attendant cultural baggage. There's so many cliches and perceptions that cling to that notion of classical music. I mean, if I say to you classical music, what do you think of? You probably think of, you know, maybe, I don't know, like a big opera singer sort of cliche, sort of big wobbling bosom hitting the high notes and shattering a glass or something. Or you might think of two very white, very preppy looking, handsome young people in sort of dinner jackets and ball gowns, sipping champagne under a chandelier in some glittering auditorium somewhere. Or you might think of some super nerdy uh, student, you know, with a violin. And I'm just going to say it. It's bougie. Bougie. It's bougie bougie yeah. as fuck. Am yeah. I allowed to say fuck yeah. on your podcast? Yes. It's yes, so are. bougie. It's so untouchable. It's so elitist. It's so weird. Like classical music says all of those things. And it has this guilt attached to it because it's like, I don't know anything about it. And also this like weird shame. But then also this weird feeling of like, I don't want to be associated with that either. Like I don't want anything to do with that. That is not my bag. And I should point out and make very clear that the last thing I'm trying to do is push classical music on people if they don't want it. What I am trying to do is break down all of those stupid, pointless barriers that don't really exist, but I understand why people think they do, so that if you want to hear it, you have to know that it's there and it's yours. And one of the most incredible revolutions of our time clearly is music technology, is streaming, is the fact that now at the click of a button, you can have access to literally multi-millions of tracks, including millions of classical tracks. Whereas previously, the only people who would have had access to classical music are those who already knew that they wanted it. They knew what to look for. They knew what to listen to. And they had the resources to pay for it. And I don't know if you ever went into the classical section of an old record store 
back in the day, but it was a very daunting place to be. It was invariably like right at the very back of the shop and you'd be the only person in there except for maybe like one random old person like in a Mac, like sifting through the CDs, you know. It sort of has this weird, like it's not very um, it's not very welcoming at all, even if you do know what you want. And I was steeped in it because I was playing it, but even then I was daunted by it and put off by that. So in theory, the whole world and universe of classical music has been opened up to us by this incredible technology. And yet, where the hell do you begin? And that's, again, it was a big sort of animating force for me behind writing Year of Wonder, because I wanted to be that field guide. I wanted to be that curator and say, I'm going to, you know, open the door and let you in because you're part of this too. And then once you're in there, I really want you to make up your own mind and cultivate your own tastes. And I didn't expect, you know, I wasn't collating. It wasn't like 100 best pieces that you must know or the 366 best pieces of classical music. I put together a collection of music that spans, as I say, almost nearly a millennium of human history from many different cultures and very many different genres and sound worlds in the hope that some of them you'd hate because then you'd know and then you'd move on to the next and you'd be cultivating your internal algorithm, if you like, as you went through it. I didn't expect everyone to love every single piece because that would be weird. It's very much sort of my taste, but it's just as important to me to say, if you don't like it, that's cool, but I bet you like this or maybe you'll like that or try that. And the idea that there's nothing in classical music that might appeal to you, I find very unlikely. But what I didn't want is for people to be like, oh, you know, I have to like Mozart or Beethoven because they're like the famous guys. I've had so many people say like, yeah, you know, that stuff just isn't really for me. But oh, my God, Max Richter or oh, my goodness, Anna Meredith or oh, wow, I really never thought I'd be into this. But that Janacek piece really blew my mind. And I love that. I love to be able to, I suppose, holding people's hands as they embark upon their own musical journeys is such a privilege and such a joy. Mm. I want to try and uh, get your point of view on something. Uh, And that is, there's, I don't know if it's a resurgence is probably the wrong word, but I think there are people who are taking historically classical instruments, the cello, for example, you know, not a lot of, uh, you don't see a lot of cellos on the pop music culture tours or, um, or at music festivals, if you will, you, you reference Glastonbury or uh, Coachella or anything. So there's, let's just say that there's not a lot of cellos being played out there. And then you have really contemporary musicians like Zoe Keating, um, or there's a handful of ones you could point to that are taking these instruments and they're like, multi-tracking them in real time on stage and it's just there i just I, I wonder what someone who comes from the world that you come from thinks of the sort of explosion and sort of re i don't know a rethinking of how that instrument can be a part of pop culture in a way that maybe classical music per se cannot I absolutely love it. I'm all for it. And I think another fantastic example, not with the cello, but with the flute is Lizzo. I mean, look at what that girl can do with the flute. I mean, you know, I just, I think it's fantastic. Music is music. It's all built from the same DNA, the same sonic building blocks, just like humans are humans. And we're all built from the same DNA as well. 
And I think whatever your jam is and whatever you're into, it basically all does come from the same source. And that is miraculous to me. And I think that it's wonderful to be thinking innovatively and adventurously about what a cello could do in a pop environment or what a flute could do in a pop environment or what a violin could do and I so I am so all for it I think anyone who comes from the classical world who finds that distasteful or you know doesn't think it's somehow the appropriate way of using those instruments is the problem I mean I think oh for sure the I think the same way about photographers right music, like oh yeah if you're not you using know, my fancy if I'm not using my if you're using your iPhone then you're somehow not a photographer like, it's that's not a photograph bullshit. I know yeah, right. I mean such and then they wonder why I mean particularly in classical there's a sort of this constant death knell being rung for the art form and actually like that's just not true. I see young people coming to it in their own way for their own reasons all the time, you know, in different ways and different, um, you know, I just think it's, it's, it's just, it's just so exciting. It's it's so inspiring. And I, I think one of the saddest things for me when I, it's not by any means, everyone in the classical industry, of course, but there are a lot of people who purport to love this art form the most, who are the very people who are keeping it out of the hands of anyone else. And I just think that's opportunity hoarding. I think that's appalling. I think that's, you know, in, inexcusable. It's not okay that just because someone doesn't know the terminology or doesn't have the right way to print or not even the right way, but, you know, isn't familiar with how to pronounce a composer or doesn't know the difference between such and such or whatever, like, who cares? That's not about the music. That's just about education. And why would they, as I say, like, why would you know what those things are if you haven't been exposed to it? But also the music itself very rarely is the thing that keeps people out. You've mentioned this already, Chase, in terms of when you hear it on a film score and it completely blows your mind. Blows your mind, yeah. It's the, it's not the music that's the problem. It's the people around it and the sort of stupid barriers that get put up. So as far as I'm concerned, if seeing someone, you know, last night I was at Carnegie Hall and I was hosting a live broadcast for WQXR of Sheku Kane Mason and his sister Isita, who's a pianist. Sheku is a cellist. He played at the royal wedding. I don't know if you watched the royal wedding when Prince Harry and Meghan Markle got married and they were signing the register, up stepped Sheku. He was... 18 or 19 at the time you know he's phenomenally gifted absolutely wonderful player the real deal I mean you know an artist of such gifts such lavish gifts you know that comes around sort of once in a generation but he was also able to connect to audiences all around the world who saw this kid you know who was black who looked cool I mean he's like so he's such a cool cat he like oozes cool who is so passionate about classical music and about his cello and is the most amazing sort of ambassador and role model for for what that music can be and what it can do and if someone is inspired to maybe pick up a cello because they saw Sheku and if the way they pick up their cello and the way that they communicate with that actually ends them up on a pop stage rather than Carnegie Hall then great it's still a cello it's still music it's still human beings so as far as I'm concerned I am all for it. I love it. I'll just share another story. My, uh, I dropped uh, a new book on September 24th uh, called Creative Calling. I think I was sharing this with you before it was actually out when we were when we last had uh, early breakfast in New York. And um, at the book launch party that I had privately for friends and family, 
um, I had a bunch of musical acts and uh, in just different, you know, it was just basically a creativity festival. So there were, um, I had a graffiti artist doing an entire car in the middle of the party. There was a, I had a, had a break dance, the massive monkeys came and performed, which is this legendary breakdance crew in, in Seattle. And, um, lots of other performers as well. Um, and one in particular made everybody lose their mind. And his name is Joshua Roman. You may know Joshua's work. He's, he's, same agent, same manager as Yo-Yo Ma. Yo-Yo Ma called yeah. him the future of classical music in America. Yeah. And he performs um, a version of Jeff Buckley's Hallelujah where he sings. And he like it, it, it was like it. I mean, my, my my scalp is tingling right now thinking about that experience. And it was so cool. And it moved so many people also very unexpectedly. Like you see a cellist. And if you didn't know who Joshua was, he's a longtime friend and we've collaborated on a handful of things. And I asked him to play and he was like, yeah, sure. That'd be cool. I'm going to be in Seattle. So, you know, he lives in New York near, near, near you all on that scene. And, mm -hmm. it, but he just tore the house down with this performance. And so I was curious, you know, I've mentioned Zoe Keating. I mentioned Joshua Roman. Um, you just mentioned the young man who played at the Royal Wedding. Anybody else in that world that you feel like is this amazing connective tissue between modern pop culture and, and classical music? There are some really fantastically interesting performers doing it, but there are also really, really interesting composers doing it and who represent this boundary-dissolving, spiritually elevating connection across the old and the new, if you like, who are really pushing boundaries about what classical music might mean in an age of technology or in an age of electronics or in the age in which we live, an age of social media, an age of, you know, digital life. And there are... Can you give us some names? I, I always... Yeah, always, so... When so I'd pressed, that, uh, I always hate to do that, but... Uppermost among them, I'd say, is a guy called Max Richter. And Max um, is a German-born, British-based composer who is absolutely taken seriously in the classical world. His his music is to be found on the Deutsche Grammophon label. It's about as prestigious a classical label as you can possibly find. You know, he's been played at the BBC Proms and on BBC Radio 3 and on WQXR and sort of all the fancy classical stations. And he is a genius in my book. He's, you know, a legit classical genius. And yet he also has this incredible work, for example, called Sleep, which is an eight hour canvas of sound that is so extraordinary that draws an audience who would never potentially come to a classical concert in a, in, in a normal classical environment. Um, he writes film music. He writes TV scores. He writes just music that I can't even describe to you. It's so, so phenomenal. And he's a great example of someone who can appeal to a crowd who would not identify as classical lovers and yet when they go and they hear his music even if it's at a club or somewhere unexpected they absolutely love it he's he's hit over a billion streams on spotify he's absolutely you know one of the most successful recording artists in that sphere in the classical world and i would argue is sort of single-handedly helped to usher in this movement, which you might call neoclassical, but there are some very talented other composers working in that space as well. Niels Fromm is one of them, Dustin O'Halloran, 
I love a composer called Mary Lattimore, who's based in LA, who's a harpist. I love Juliana Barwick. Um, so also you'll notice they're not all dudes as well. You know, this is um, one of the interesting things. I've spent a lot of time over the last few years really working hard to unearth composers from history who just happen to be female, but also to really try and boost and celebrate composers working today. Some of, I think, the most interesting musical minds who, again, will connect across disciplines and audiences, like you mentioned, you know, who will be able to identify and connect with audiences who don't think they like classical music. People like Anna Meredith is a really good example. Jesse Montgomery. There are so many of them, you know, they're, wow. they're all Yeah, this is like, I just feel like I bowled over. I'm like trying to write these down as you're saying them. And I am going to send I can't you keep up with a playlist. Re- replay it, yes. I'm going to send you a playlist of oh, these guys. I would love it. For sure. And Ooh, these maybe girls, we can include that in, sh- in the show notes. That would be amazing. Yeah, do it. I think that's um, something that I feel most excited about when I, you know, I said I'm not a pusher, but I do pedal it a bit. You know, people are like, oh, what should I listen to? In fact, one of my other podcasts is called Classical Fix. And um, in that podcast, I mix people who don't know anything about classical music necessarily or don't think they do. I mix in their own classical playlist, so six tracks. And they have a listen at home and then they come into the studio and we just talk about how they responded to it. We talk about whether they liked it or didn't like it and if so, why and how and what they thought. And I have learned so much from doing that show I love it and it's sometimes tracks on there that I think I know really really well or that I've you know played all my life and I've had in my life in so many different ways and some someone will respond with an observation about it that will blow my mind I'll be like oh my yes oh my god that yes exactly and I've never thought about it in those way I've never heard it in that way and that is one of the great joys of life for me is sharing this music and feeling and hearing how other people respond to it I go back to that image of us as human beings around the fire singing songs to each other sharing music you know mixing each other our little playlists and I think about my boyfriend when I was 15 mixing me those playlists and I think about me now mixing these playlists for other people and writing these books that just are really all about opening up this world and and finding ways to connect so so many podcasts you're on the radio you've (laughs) got this you know an amazing book the year of wonder it's a it's such a powerful way to dip your toe into this genre of music again and it's it's less about the genre of music i think there is this accessibility thing we've been playing on but it's more about mood like if you're into feeling the range of human emotions and you can just open it up as i you know i've just done to a couple different pages and read the story the the range of emotions is obviously limitless, um, but so much work in the space. What are you working on now? Well, I am working on a follow-up to Year of Wonder, which will come out next year. And what are you going to call so- it? Second Year of Wonder? <laughs> <laughs> Another Year of Wonder. Year Another of More year Wonder. Of wonder. <laughs> it's actually just called Year of Music, and I really wrestled with what to call it next. And I came upon that partly because I do think that the term classical music is really problematic. And I would love for us to start thinking of classical music as just being music. And I think one of the great delights of living in a sort of genre-free world that we sort of do on the music platforms that we tend to use is that, you know, you can be served up something that 
you don't know the genre of you know it doesn't have to fit into a certain box and it's just music and I think that young people young people today I can't believe I was about to say that (laughs) but you know I think the way that people discover music today and the way that they use music today is just so different from when I was growing up and so yeah I've, I've sort of I'm I'm living in hope that one day we'll get beyond the stupid term classical music. So that's why the follow-up is called Year of Music. I'm working too on a second season of the Open Ears project, which I am incredibly excited about. We've had some absolutely phenomenal stories. And what's really been moving to me is that people hearing the first season have got in touch with their own stories. And so we're incorporating some of those stories into the into the mix for the next round. Um, they've been really, really powerful and it's been a really powerful and it's deeply moving experience for me making this show. Um, I absolutely love it. So there's another season of that coming. Wow. Um, I have two other podcasts, as I mentioned, Classical Fix, and then I also have a podcast called Moments That Made Me, which has got nothing to do with music at all, or the arts. I interview really interesting people from many different industries, often tech leaders chase you on my list we're going to have to have this conversation um i interview them about five key moments in their life that they felt were really turning points so in the last season we had people like jimmy wales who founded wikipedia we had the founder of skype we had people like ariana huffington and the wonderful turkish novelist elif shafak and this season we've also got an amazing lineup and um i'm looking forward to releasing that Um, I just love people. I love talking to people. I love helping them tell their stories. I love learning from people, being inspired by people. And, you know, I love just conversation, I guess, as well. So podcast is a big, certainly a big priority. Um, And then I have my day job, (laughs) uh, which is uh, pretty demanding in itself, but very inspiring. And I'm working with some wonderful colleagues here at New York Public Radio. We program a lot of live events, so if any of your listeners are in New York, you should check us out at the Green Space in Soho. Um, but I also just work on the radio here as well and uh, still do quite a lot of print journalism as well. And then I also have two kids. Yeah. <laughs> they're, quite a lot of, they're quite a lot of work and, you know, trying to keep <laughs> up seeing friends and going to movies and seeing the theatre and just, you know, oh. living my life, um, which definitely tends to get shoved down the priority list put it that way we'll carve some time trying out to find time to be creative you know to 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 take photographs and to write and to do things that are small acts of self-care for me even if they're not immediately pertinent to a, a creative project that i'm working on professionally oh that's the, the daily habit part which the is daily uh, habit we, which we, you we are the hero of we know how profound that can be um, yeah. we'll carve some time out for your friend chase when uh Certainly, I know it's a little bit crazy here heading into the holidays, but um, I'll shoot you a text the next time I'm going to be there so we can get another I bagel. I love that. I and um, love it. what's it, what's a good set of coordinates for people to um, to track you and or your work down? We, you've named a couple of podcasts. Maybe just bunch them in there. And I know um, you, you've uh, you're on Instagram and Twitter. You spend yeah, some time. Yeah, so there. I'm not very good at social media, but I am on Instagram and Twitter at clemencybh clemency c-l-e-m-e-n-c-y-b-h and then you can find the open ears project um online wherever you get your podcast if you search for the open ears project or you can go to our website which is openearsproject.org hit subscribe and you will never miss an episode i love it i love it well congratulations on 
all of the success, which even since the last, I mean, remember you were telling me about the open ears project before you'd actually started it. And then, wow, it just, you just started dropping these huge guests. So I was like, well, she's not messing around. She's going straight for it. I don't mess around. Life's too short. (laughs) You do not mess around. Um, Well, thank you. So much. Sorry, for I was going to jump in there and ruin your Please ending. Do. Sorry, I was just no, going to say no. that it's one of one of the great gifts of a creative life. Actually, is that you do put something out into the world, and something that comes from deep inside you. It can be really risky and terrifying to release it into the world. And I guess back to your one of your original early questions about advice. You know, is it can be terrifying. And I'm a real perfectionist, and it's that's a that's a difficult thing to be in a creative life. I think many of us are. And sometimes I get terrified at the idea of putting something out into the world if I don't think it's perfect. But one of my colleagues said here, you know, never let the perfect get in the way of the good. And I'm not sure I necessarily always subscribe to that. But I do think that one of the great gifts of what we do is that we share it and we put it out there and then it lives and it has its life and then it turns into something else and someone else's life and I I just I feel that's just such an immense privilege and I'll never ever take it for granted anyway I massively just crashed your ending which no this is being, like being just... beautifully done but... <laughs> your ending was way better than anything I could come up with you just put this beautiful bow on oh. on our conversation and so grateful to have you on the show and as you, I've said before I'm happy to go on anything that you do uh, your one of your new podcasts or whatever. I'd love it. And we're definitely going to plan this over a bagel the next time I'm in New York. Absolutely. Early and... morning, downtown bagel, and we will make all these things happen. <laughs> I love it. Thank you so much for being a guest on the show. And you, I will, I'll, I'll uh, reach out shortly. See you soon. Okay. Keep creating. Bye. Bye. All right. That about wraps it up. But uh, hey, before you bounce, two quick things. Um, actually, I'm going to go three quick things. Thing one, A, thank you so much for being a part of this community. And I'm not quite sure how you, you landed on this podcast. It doesn't matter to me. The fact that we're all in this together and that we're able to have a conversation is awesome. I feel uh, honored to be in your ears right now and that uh, you've paid attention to what I've been doing, what Creative Live has been doing for some time. And whether it's been a day or 10 years, I just want to say thank you. It's also really important to know on the backside of that that I, I do a lot of responding to comments. So hit me up, on, you know, direct message me on, on Instagram or Twitter or at me. I try and respond as much as possible. So let's have a conversation that transcends me just being in your ears here. Let's try and do it some, somewhere out there in, on the internet land. That's thing one. Thing two, again, I'm not quite sure what channels you pay attention to me and my work, but please go check out. I'm at Chase Jarvis or slash Chase Jarvis or whatever on all the platforms. And it's really important to me. Also, if you wouldn't mind checking out Creative Live, it's something that not only myself, but 120 other committed hardcore badass people come to work every day uh, to build the place where creators and entrepreneurs learn so check that out they're just slash creative live or at creative live all over out there on the internet all right until again uh, probably tomorrow i hope i'll hear you i'll be in your ears maybe tomorrow and i'll look for your comments on the internets bye